Michelle Hennessy here, presenter of The Explainer. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about another project from the journal. You've likely heard some of our episodes where we linked up with the Good Information Project, a series that explored 15 major topics our readers told us impact on their lives. Well, now it has its very own podcast, the Good Information Podcast. In each episode, our editors and reporters join managing editor Susan Daly to dig into these issues and examine their effect on Ireland and its place in the EU. The first episode explores the question of a united Ireland, and this episode is already available for you to listen to. If you enjoy The Explainer, we think you'll also get something from the Good Information podcast. You'll find it on Spotify or Apple Podcast, as well as the Journal app. Check it out and let us know what you think by emailing hello at thejournal.ie. And now, back to The Explainer. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, why isn't Ireland winning the Eurovision Song Contest? Well, it wasn't our year, and in fact, it hasn't been our year of the Eurovision for a long time now. Despite a catchy pop entry from Brooks Gullion and a strong performance on the night, Ireland failed to make it past the semi-finals this year. Our last top 10 finish was back in 2011 when Jedward's lipstick made it to 8th place in the final and our last win was with The Voice performed by Emer Quinn in 1996 in Oslo. Here at The Explainer we found ourselves asking where it all went wrong. Did we just lose our mojo? Does it have anything to do with us sending a turkey to represent us one year? And how could we get back on top? To chat to us about everything Eurovision, I'm joined today by the journal's news editor, Dara Brophy, who was in Turin for the Song Contest semi-finals, and also by Johnny Fallon, strategy director at Car Communications, who has a particular interest in the Eurovision and the way voting has played out over the years. You're both very welcome. Thank you very much. Buongiorno, Michelle. <laughs> now, before we get into it, let's hear a little bit of our entry from this year, a song called That's Rich, which was performed by Brooks Gullion. Stupid, that's Now, Dara, I want to come to you first because you were over there at the semi-finals of the contest when Brooke performed that song. And you have been for as long as I've known you anyway, quite a fan of the Eurovision. So what was it like to see it up close and personal? I'm still processing, Michelle, to be honest. I was there from uh, early on semi-final night right through to the early hours of Sunday morning after the final and after the Ukraine press conference. Uh, the closest description I can give you at the moment is... Um, if you remember the Channel 4 show Eurotrash, it's a cross between that and the National Ploughing Championships, at least as far as my experience of the press room goes. Uh, it's really interesting to see it up close and you can't really understand the appeal of the Eurovision, I think, until you've been there because what you have to understand is all the super fans who are there have been watching the entries online for months and they've been watching the dress rehearsals, sometimes attending the dress rehearsals for the semifinals from Monday of the week of the Eurovision. So they have seen all the lived with these songs for months and when they're applauding, you know, someone's look to a camera on the Saturday night or someone like nailing a note, they're applauding because they've seen that performer's progress over the week and over the months ahead. So they're giving them a pat on the back for kind of nailing the performance on the night. So that's why the audience in the venue can seem a little bit nuts if you're just tuning in at eight o'clock on a Saturday and you haven't seen any of the songs before. And obviously, we unfortunately didn't make it into the final. But what was the night of the final like? There must have been a great atmosphere. Yeah, well, I was in the press centre, which is a giant marquee attached to the uh, arena there in Turin. 
And it's unlike any large event I've covered before, because uh, normally you've got a certain journalistic detachment from everyone in these big press centres. But at the Eurovision, around two thirds of the people in the press room are fan community members. So they are working for Eurovision dedicated websites and blogs uh, around the world, broadcasting in various languages. Uh, and so they all have their national flags. They're huge into it. So when the semifinals, the dress rehearsals, the finals are being played out, they're waving their French flags, their Spanish flags, they're dancing on the tables. That's not something you generally find at the, these large events. So it's quite infectious. I was kind of sitting there next to the BBC guy trying to like be a bit dispassionate about the whole thing. But you really can't help get involved and, you know, go over and start singing along with the Serbians when, when the singing breaks out. So we know how it went in the end at the semifinals in terms of the end result. But how was the Irish entry from Brooks Gullion received on the ground while you were there? Uh, it was received very well from the fan community who I was speaking to, like just the Eurovision super fans and then the Irish fans who were there uh, on the night. She was hugely popular with the Eurovision fans uh, just because of her personality. She was always out meeting and greeting people. Um, they liked her personality online and they saw her progress as well because she said herself when she came over and was doing the dress rehearsals, she was facing the wrong cameras. She was kind of missing her cues. And as she got more kind of battle ready uh, over the weeks uh, and her voice improved, uh, you could see it on the night, the confidence uh, when the camera zoomed in on her. She was all confidence and she put in a great show. They'd also worked on the arrangement and the staging. There was fireworks involved. So in the press room, which was crowded on the night, when the fireworks went off, People were up on their feet dancing in the press room and it went down really well. In the first half of the show, I'd say there was only two or three songs that got people up on their feet in the press room and uh, ours was one of them. Johnny, I want to bring you in here. Before the semi-finals, what sort of chance did Ireland have of winning? Am I right in saying we weren't exactly favourites? We weren't exactly favourites is, is very much correct. We were uh, well down the betting and certainly there wasn't much talk in Eurovision circles uh, about the Irish entry or about it being anything unique or different. Every year when you, you see Eurovision um, in the, the lead up to it and the months coming up to it, there are always some songs that everybody is talking about. Inevitably, there's a couple of surprise packets and everybody hopes they are one of those surprise packets. But in general, the vast majority of, of songs that aren't talked about don't go anywhere. Um, and I think Ireland was very much in that category. I think from, from it won in the national final, most Eurovision insiders were not giving it much hope. It was kind of more of a fingers crossed. It might surprise uh, rather than any great hope for it. And Derek, the winners this year were Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra. Was it clear to people over there that Ukraine were always going to win it? I think it was. Um, and from the Eurovision fans perspective, I think maybe it took a bit of the fun out of it. Like, well, everyone could see why Ukraine were going to win. The people who've lived with the songs for months on end knew that there were other really good songs that were maybe getting overlooked. But Ukraine had been installed as odds-on favourites from weeks before the contest. Uh, so it was no surprise when they were announced as winners on the night. Once they were about round number four, I think, in the list when the jury votes came in, which meant that once they they finished tops and got a significant vote uh, from the viewers, they were they were destined to win on the night and they, they romped home with it. Could you explain a little bit, Dara, about how different countries select their songs for the contest? Is there a standard process or is it different depending on the country? Yeah, there's always kind of complaints from um, Irish viewers, um, probably justifiably so, uh, whenever we get knocked out of the contest. But there's nothing like, it's not the UN, it's not the EU. It's a, comp it's a song competition organised by European broadcasters. 
and the Australian public broadcaster. So uh, there's various different ways that the song can be selected. Um, in some countries, it's heavily reliant on a public vote. In other countries, it's a split between um, jury and a public vote. But it, broadcasters can also just pick the song. And that's what Ireland were doing up to this year. Like for the last few years, it was just RT uh, that picked the song. So the UK, for instance, who came second, that song was just picked by the BBC and a huge talent management agency. Cornelia Jacobs, the entry from Sweden. Now that came tops in a months long um, Eurosong festival that they have called the, uh, the Melody Festival. Looking down the final list, there were some really experienced acts in there. So, for instance, the Rasmus, they were a huge alt-rock band uh, around 20 years ago. They had a hit with In the Shadows. So they're hugely experienced playing to live crowds. Um, Moldova sent a band called Zobdi Zub. Uh, there was like a folk stomper thing. And they've been in the Eurovision twice before and finished in the top 10 both times. So countries kind of can rely on a mix of votes and selection and a lot of them are sending like really experienced acts at the moment. So we have a clip we're going to play in here. And this is just to underscore that Eurovision is such huge business these days in a lot of European countries, maybe not so much in this part of the world. So while I was at the contest in Turin, I spoke to Noel Curran. He's the director general of the EBU, which organises the Eurovision. He also happens to be a former director general of RTE. And he said that the popularity of the contest has exploded on social media platforms, particularly platforms like TikTok in recent years, and that record companies in the continent are also starting to make a huge investment. So the viability of the contest is secure. It's a much bigger event. It's mm. growing every year. You look at the press centre, the number of uh, attendees, the staging is, you know, there was big back then as well, but it's, it's, it is it's is in many ways even bigger. And the, the expectations have increased. And then I think the other thing you're seeing is that more established artists in their own countries are performing. That's why the performances are so good. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of these people, arena performances are not new. And uh, for some people they are, mm. but some of them will have come through their local X Factor or their local whatever, whatever the, the contest is. So they've been on TV before. And then the second big thing that has changed is the record companies. Manskin were one of the biggest acts in the world last year. So the record companies have realised this is a massive platform. Johnny, I'll, I'll bring you back in here. Were you at all surprised by the result in the grand final? Um, not particularly a surprise. I mean, for, for many people have predicted, of course, that Ukraine would, would win. Um, and that was largely on the basis of they had a good song, uh, as Ukraine tend to nearly always do. Uh, and, of course, events uh, that are occurring around about that will also influence votes. Um, so there was no great surprise maybe in the, the final result as it played out. I was surprised by some particularly of the jury votes. Um, the jury votes are always a little bit controversial because you know they do do some things that I suppose people find a little bit suspicious sometimes, um, more so than the public vote, ironically enough. And I think the public vote, uh, you know, the, the, seeing the UK at the top for me, it was a surprise uh, simply because I suppose I'm a bit of an old fogey and, and that's something we should say about music straight off. Music is very much a 
taste thing. And, you know, when people talk about a song contest, what's a good song is totally different to other people. There was clearly a zeitgeist that the UK latched on to with Sam Ryder, clearly a song that resonated across Europe as well, even though I really didn't like it. And uh, that's just my musical taste. And I was very much out of that zone. So I was delighted to see it overtaken. Spain as well was a real surprise packet uh, coming through both in the juries and indeed in in, uh, the public vote too and, and how well it did. Uh, I don't think we particularly saw that coming. Others were expected, like Sweden and, and something like that, to do well. But within those patterns, that, that surprised maybe. The biggest surprise, I think, for everybody was probably that yet again we saw such a glaring kind of difference between juries and the public. And that's not a good sign for the jury votes to be so out of step with the public. This year is obviously exceptional. So if we take the 2020 contest out of the equation, what dictates who wins the Eurovision? Well, I suppose the, the the elements remain similar. Like and and even in this year, as you say, it was exceptional because there's such an outpouring from the public, a public desire, and the public vote is what what uh, gave us to Ukraine. But at the same time, it's more a question of scale um, that did that this time. And and one would have to be suspicious that perhaps the jury vote was purposely not voting um, for Ukraine uh, in an effort to be ultra fair in some way about it. Because I think we were surprised to see Ukraine not featuring higher in some of the jury votes. Every year, what you're, you're looking for in songs, though, is it must have a catchy song. It must be a reasonably good song. It must be a song that travels well across Europe. And then it must have some overarching mood or concept that just grasps people. And it's hard to know what that is. You can't predict it, but it is something that people feel that the tune, just at that moment in time, that zeitgeist piece, it just captures it. And winners tend to have that. It could be that people just feel like a slow song, a sad song, a fast song, a disco song what it's about, what the act portrays it's about, the story behind us, the story behind the song, all of those things capture a moment. And winning songs tend to do that all the time. They tend to be something that this is the song for the moment. This is the song for this year. The following year, if you try to copy that or you try to recreate it, that moment is gone. It's a very fleeting thing in Eurovision. It's there for a year. It's there. It's something people like for that year. Then it's done. They move on for the next big thing. And I think Ukraine were part of that this year. But definitely, yes, it was an exceptional year for the scale of it, uh, particularly from the public. But the same rule still applies. It's, It's a good song that catches some kind of public spirit. And is there some level of campaigning involved or, or is there an element of, of luck or or just sort of randomness to it? I think there's there's a, a certain amount of, of uh, when I talk about that thing of capturing a zeitgeist or a mood, that's luck. You don't know what that's going to be. We don't know what that mood is going to be this month, next year, um, when, when Eurovision happens again. So you've got to kind of hope that a singer and songwriter has something that they, they just grasp. And that's, that's the bit of luck. Other than that, though, yes, once you have a strong song, there is campaigning. It's like any election. You know, acts have to travel. They have to go to other countries. They have to be seen on the chat shows. 
And, you know, people sometimes forget, you know, they, they I get people who say to me, oh, well, look, at it's, it used to be a song contest and it should be a song contest. It never was just a song contest. Songs were in it. But if it was a song contest, you would throw it on radio. You'd say nobody can hear, can see anything. They just hear the song and there'll be no talk to any of the contestants. They'll just arrive on, you'll hear a song. And we all know nobody had listened to that. This is something that came out of television companies coming together who always wanted to create TV spectacle. That's what it is, a TV spectacle that people share in and has always been the same. And what, what happens when countries go try to create a song and travel, you've got to be able to go out there and you've got to tell the story behind it. If you're watching X Factor, what is it? Is it the singer that you're really looking at or is it their backstory? Everybody knows what that makes the story on the TV program. It's the same for these acts. They have to be able to tell a story. We all like the act that has a backstory of some kind or a song that reaches into some kind of backstory. So there is a campaigning. People need to see it on their TV, see the other acts, and then they feel a certain affinity to them and get to like the song over time. So then how much of it comes down to the performance on the night? I mean, if there was a one of the favourites and they give a terrible performance on the night of, of the final, would they still have a good chance of winning? I think they, if they gave a terrible performance, they'd have a good chance of doing well, but not maybe winning. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that, of course, voting is broken up. Um, the jury votes actually listen to the sec, what's called the second rehearsal. So two nights before, they're casting their votes. Um, so all the juries are in before the grand final, before the, the public see the grand final. They've made their decisions. So that second rehearsal is effectively for the jury vote, a live show. And you have to perform that really, really well. It's not a rehearsal at all, in fact. Then on the night, that's where the public vote. Now, the vote in Eurovision is broken up between people who follow Eurovision very much throughout the year. They've listened to the songs, they download them, they look at them, they follow the songs, the artists, and those people probably are not swayed as much on the night. But then there's a huge audience who only tune into Eurovision on the night itself. They don't listen to anything beforehand. They don't read any articles about it. They don't really care about the contest other than watching it on the night. They will look at it on the night and then they see a song they like and they download the app and they just vote because they want to. If you have a bad performance on the night, you're going to lose those votes. And there's quite a lot of them out there, those random votes that just show up on the night and go, I don't know why everyone was talking about that song. I hated it, you know, and, and that's the problem for them. And what about the role that, that politics plays in it? I mean, the UK, for example, have tended to throw us a bone over the years. So are there other countries that are likely to vote for neighbours and allies, even if they're not keen on the actual song? Oh, absolutely. Um, look, all voting, once you, you, you allow any kind of vote in any walk of life, you're going to have that. Um, you know, you can go to a general election in Ireland. And why do candidates get elected? They get elected on the basis of geography. They get elected on the basis of the clubs and societies they're involved in and whether people like those clubs and societies or have been involved in them with them and culturally are the same. All of those things play in, in any vote. In Eurovision, exactly the same. All all countries have a voting block. In Ireland, we will vote with the UK. When we have a song, when the songs we do well in, we tend to get votes from Sweden. We tend to get votes from Denmark. We have that Nordic, in a larger Nordic block. We're very much in the heart of that. And we tend to vote for those countries too over the years. So we're very much part of a block. There are blocks everywhere. That's normal because people culturally 
uh, will like it. And and by the way, the jury vote sometimes is even worse for this. However, what's important to remember is if every country has a block, then you're going to get a certain amount of votes from those neighbours. That's not what wins you or qualifies you through it. The countries that then qualify manage to get just enough votes outside of that circle. So they manage to appeal to a couple of more countries beyond that and they get out of a semi-final and they, they, the song has travelled that little bit better than their own block. And then finally, the song that will win must pick up votes in every single country. So even you look at, at Ukraine or the UK or Spain, what you're seeing in those voting patterns is they're getting a point in nearly every single country. There's no country really ignoring them. And for a really strong winner, they're usually picking up high points in countries uh, right across the EU and that's or the EBU's uh, region. And that's what makes it the, 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 the hit song. That's what makes it the winner. So it's not just about, it, it's like any election. You have your base. A uh, candidate in any election has a base, but it's can you pick up votes outside your base? And that's what determines the winner. If we turn back the clock here a bit, quite a bit, actually, how did Ireland do so well in previous Eurovisions? Was it goodwill or good entries or a bit of both? Um, a mix of both, uh, to, to be fair, because when you go back to, say, uh, Ireland's heyday, which you're probably talking the 80s and 90s uh, in this, what you see is a country that really was emerging in itself. So for Irish people, Eurovision was important. They took it very seriously. And the artists going to Eurovision were the popular art, the artists who were really popular in Ireland at the time. And they were, they were, if you like, celebrities in their own right here in Ireland uh, that we wanted. So you had a good interest from the music industry in Ireland in Eurovision. And I, I, like we sent entries, like you got to remember throughout the 80s, you had not only the winning of uh, Johnny Logan in, uh, twice uh, in it, but you had, we came second with Linda Martin in uh, 1985. We had uh, Liam Riley second in 1990. We were known for consistently high entries, very similar to the last 20 years, what Ukraine have had consistently high entries where people feel these guys are always good they're always enjoyable they're they're always have a high and people look out for the entry and therefore you get the songs in it it was it was something that ireland was was good that we had those good quality songs now added to that we shouldn't deny that there was a huge element of goodwill coming through the 80s and into the 90s we were the poster child for countries in Europe that could do better, that were improving. Uh, we were the poster child for the European Union, even for its success. So bigger countries were proud of us, like a proud parent might be, that we were moving from huge poverty levels and, and problems into an era of wealth throughout the 90s. Peace process in Northern Ireland was a good news story, everything. And we were a nation that was seen as hugely welcoming. When the Balkan countries, the breakup of Yugoslavia, the war there, the Eurovision Song Contest in Mill Street, Ireland was seen as hugely welcoming to these countries. Uh, an example for other countries to follow that, you know, Europe was here, your vision was here, you'd be welcomed into it and it was a chance to showcase yourself and be on the stage and everybody would love you. And that was partially why people liked Ireland too. That image, that up and coming, do no harm to everybody, very welcoming, very fun loving and has some really good solid songs. Those two things combined really made a winning formula. 
added to one other fact that should always be mentioned, that we had an enormous advantage up until uh, the late 90s, which was that every country had to sing in their native language, which meant that Ireland could sing in English as well as Irish, and we always entered in English. But we were one of the f ourselves and the UK being the only entries, if you like, going through in English, um, with, with some others uh, having, having the same derogation. But we're so rare that our songs travelled much easier than songs sung in a native language. Now, lots of songs win in, in native languages, but it's much harder. Singing a song in English, as you'll see by the sheer amount of entries nowadays in English, it's hard to find ones that aren't in, their that aren't in English because it's such an advantage when you want a song to travel. That was also part of the mix too. What's changed then for Ireland since Emer Quinn's 1996 win? Where did it all go wrong for us? Um, well, I think picking up the, right there, that was that was the point at which the English language rule changed. We didn't really adapt to that. Um, and, and that was something that we didn't realise was such an advantage perhaps to us uh, when other countries began to be able to sing uh, in, in English as well. Added to that, I would say to you, Ireland began to change. Um, Ireland's attitude by the late 90s, early 2000s had very much changed as a society towards Eurovision. And, and we're not unusual in this. It happens all Western countries as they get wealthier, as they get more successful, they move away from things like Eurovision. We got snobby about it. Who wants old Eurovision? Oh, boring. We don't want to listen to that. Oh, it's so kitsch. Oh, yeah. Our musicians became a little bit snobby about it. Who want to be in Eurovision? It's all only a, an entertainment show. Uh, we didn't get the entries that we were getting before. We weren't able to attract the top talent into entering the contest. And that allied itself as well, I think, politically, I would say, to a time in the early 2000s when Ireland also moved to a point we rejected things like the Nice Treaty. We were becoming a lot wealthier in our own right, and we were becoming a lot more suspicious of things like European enlargement. We were becoming more Eurosceptic. All of that created an image of Ireland that was very different to the one the rest of Europe had of us back in those early 80s as well. So not only were our entries going down in, in musical quality because we weren't attracting the same level of contestant and musical interest in it, we were also creating an image of ourselves which was seen to other countries as, hold on, Ireland was this poster child that we could all be part of and you could all look to and in Eurovision, but suddenly when it's not going Ireland's way, Ireland is very bitter about this. And we became seen as one of those more conservative countries that really wasn't as welcoming as we've made ourselves out to be, um, both politically and indeed within Eurovision. That probably culminated in the entry of Dustin uh, to the Eurovision, which you know was a great joke uh, here in Ireland where people got it. To other European countries, this was making a laugh of countries who couldn't even pronounce their names, this kind of joke, this kind of thing that, you know, oh, where has it all gone wrong? You know, we, we are from a country that knows how to write a song, but now it's all this rubbish on stage. That really was grossly insulting to many new Eastern European countries coming in who looked at Ireland and thought, you know what, this just ties into the political narrative about Ireland. When everything's going their way, they love it. Once anybody else starts to win or do something, they get bitter, make excuses and say, oh, it's all these other people coming in, getting their way and they're not as good as us. Uh, was better when it was our way. And Johnny, has that had a lasting impact? Did that damage our reputation in the Eurovision? 
It, it has in a way, and not, not insofar as people aren't uh, going around, you know, talking about dust on all the time in, in Eurovision. Uh, that, that part was probably forgotten. But the narrative hasn't gone away. And, and Ireland has done nothing in recent years to dispel that narrative. Um, the reaction in Ireland, the reaction of the media and the Eurovision audience itself, that the core Eurovision audience is very much, it has a long memory. It's very involved. People do read the articles. They, they're a very close community. They notice the things. They know just these comments we've former winners uh, of, of the Eurovision you know going out and saying oh I don't like this public vote and uh, I'm very suspicious of it but Ireland keeps coming out with these statements people does not enhance our reputation so what has lasted is a narrative that Ireland is just bitter because it doesn't win and it tries to denigrate the contest it tries to say it was better years before and it tries to rather than adjust with the times give out about blocks and other countries rather than just getting its act together and and that is is something that's a narrative I think that has lasted now in your vision for Ireland so what's the closest then we've come to winning in recent years and what got us that close um, the closest probably Jedward's eighth place uh, finish um, and I think again what you had was a catchy song um, that was 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 quite strong you had two performers who were well used to performing on it and well used to going out they created their own little image their own little vehicle if you like um that was needed to be out there and that's part of what i said getting that zeitgeist they might not have got it in total for eurovision that year but it was definitely part of it people liked the act they liked something about them they liked the story they liked what they were doing now you don't have to be in my view you know always a professional artist it helps with a big contest because it's very difficult to put somebody who's never stood in front of a a major stadium audience in front of a eurovision audience because it's a it's a big place to go and perform but at the same time you have to have something about you you have to have some story you have to have some way of connecting with audiences jed were probably were, were capable of doing that and they had a decent song uh, that, that went well at the time the second year they entered the song wasn't quite as catchy they didn't perform quite as well it, they still performed admirably but you know the the mood had moved on and as i say you've got to predict things one of the things i think that we don't do enough in ireland is we don't take enough risks we think there's a formula to winning or we throw our hands up about it we don't take risks you got to plan to win and and that means you got to stop planning just to qualify sometimes you're going to come last some country has to come last that's okay. There's no shame in coming last. At the end of the day, it's just an entertainment show. It's a contest. It's a bit of fun. Coming last is no great insult. You just come back next year and you try something different. And that's all there is to it. But be willing to experiment. And that's, that's something we haven't been willing to do very often. And what about the voting system? What kind of changes have there been over the years? And could those have impacted on our chances? They they have to a degree um, in that the same they've impacted on every country's chances. We've moved from what was upon a time was a complete jury vote. Um, so it was only juries. Now, there was lots of good reasons that that was scrapped. And jury votes certainly do vote in blocks as well in the same way. But that moved for a short period to a completely public vote. But lots of people didn't like that because the public are a little bit more prone to that just on the night kind of thing. And even more so, perhaps slightly for the neighbours thing. If there's an artist who's really popular and you send them there and they're popular in two or three countries, 
that artist tends to suck up even more votes from the public. Um, there was complaints about diaspora voting and things like that happening across Europe. So it now has developed into this 50-50 and they're trying to marry those as a, a, a nice mix. In a lot of years it works, but I think the jury vote is again coming under pressure because of it, because so many times now they've been found to be completely out of sync with what's popular. And I would just add that, you know, we can't discount what's popular because when we talk about song contests, ultimately, as I say, what's a good song is, is so much taste. My kids hate the music I listen to. They get in the car and want to put on their playlist and I go mad because I can't listen to what they're listening to, you know, but that's just part of aging and everything else. We ha it's very subjective as to what's a good song. But if you look at some of the songs that have won and lost, even from Ireland's perspective, uh, one of the ones that was one of my favorites and many people's favorites over the years would have been Rock and Roll Kids. Um, but the truth is that's one of the worst selling Eurovision uh, songs um, in terms of commercial success. Uh, the Voice that won a couple of years later did did somewhat better, but not quite as well as Gina G and Ooh Ah just a little bit uh, that from came second uh, from the UK in that year, which was a massive hit. So I think the public have a right to their taste and for Eurovision to survive, the public have a right to decide what, what gets in there. And, and you just have to adapt to, to public mood as well. Finally, Johnny, the million dollar question, what do we need to do to win again? And is it too late, do you think, for us to claw our way back at some stage? Oh, it's never too late with Eurovision. Um, you see a cycle with countries going through this. And, and, and the UK is, is actually a great example. Now, I might not have got their entry. I might not li have liked the song uh, personally, but they cannot deny it captured something that Europe liked and people liked. And, and, and the artist, Sam Ryder, really managed to... to th there's obviously a taste of music there that that really appeals to. And you have to acknowledge that. Now, the UK have been a typical example of a country that for years have said, everybody hates us, block voting, nobody's going to ever vote for us, all this, et cetera, et cetera. And then they managed to do a come, come second in the contest, doing really well, particularly in a year where there was such a mood for the Ukraine, uh, for Ukraine, sorry, to uh, win the contest among the public. So it was a huge achievement for the UK, dispelling completely the idea that, you know, oh, people just don't vote for you. They will if the song is right and it appeals. Spain hasn't got, you know, a wide variety of neighbours down there. Portugal has won the contest. Iceland has done incredibly well. I mean, Iceland is an example of exactly what happens with a small population, consistently high entries, but it's because in Iceland, everybody is actually into the contest. So their musicians and their groups really want to compete. In Ireland, we still have this. We need to get over it. I think in order to win, you need to put in place a strategy now for the next couple of years and be open with people, first of all, that we're not going to maybe win. We're going to take risks. Sometimes we'll come last. Sometimes we'll qualify. Who knows? But we also have to start dispelling the myths among the general population about it being voting blocks or that it's just changed as a contest. Through that, re-engaging all the musicians so as people want to enter. I do know from talking to people in RTE, they have said to me year on year, the level of some of the entries is just deplorable. Uh, we just don't get enough good entries coming through to the contest. Um, then we have to be critical about the songs. But that element of trying to talk ourselves up you don't talk yourself into a winner you have to be critical and we have to be self-critical in ireland a little bit about our entries rather than blaming other people or voting systems or anything else 
And then over a couple of years, I think we could get back to a time when you could have a national contest where maybe the public can vote, where people can vote. But I don't think we're there yet because I don't think we engage enough people in it. Well, it's good anyway to hear that there's hope. That's a nice positive note for us to finish on. Thanks, Johnny, for joining us and to Dara as well. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Dara and to Johnny for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>